Professionally Grounded. I'm your host, Brian Willey, along with my co-host, John Kessler. Episode 55 features Jeff Jansen of Jansen Sports Leadership. Mr. Jansen discusses the steps for creating a championship culture and empowering the members of your program to sustain success. We also discuss the challenges currently facing many coaches attempting to change their culture and offer solutions and strategies to combat these divisive issues. An author of several books on leadership and cultural development, Jeff Jansen's curriculum has application to listeners from all walks of life, and his track record of success speaks volumes of his transformative program. This season, Intentionally Grounded is partnering with First Down Playbook. For coaches looking for a playbook software that is user-friendly and can deliver the clarity necessary to share and communicate your scheme with coaches and players alike, check out First Down Playbook. For more information, check out their website at firstdownplaybook.com, and for our listeners of our show, enter the code IGFB20 when purchasing individual or program memberships to receive a discount at checkout. Again, that code is IGFB20. Don't forget to check out our website at igfootballcoach.com for all our blog posts and podcast episodes. And check out our newly released YouTube channel that houses the video cast version of our podcast episodes as well, along with additional content related to leadership, football, and coaching development. Episode 55 with Jeff Jansen starts now. And we're here with Jeff Jansen, author of many leadership books. Mr. Jansen, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience for those who've never heard of you before? Yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, I've been real fortunate over the last 25 years. I've had the opportunity to learn from a ton of coaches and athletes. Um, We're probably best known for our team captain's leadership manual, um, which is a book that a lot of college coaches and high school coaches um, have used to train their leaders. We were probably one of the first ones to do that. We actually started with the University of North Carolina about 15, 16 years ago and developed a comprehensive leadership academy with their student athletes and with their coaches. And uh, the curriculum that we've used then has really branched out. We've probably had about almost 40 different schools that we do leadership academies for. And as I said, there's been a ton of uh, coaches who've used our team captain's leadership manual to train their leaders. So, you know, I've had the opportunity to learn from some really great coaches and try to figure out what they're doing well and then put that into a program and a package and a system that everyone who wants to build better leaders or create a championship culture or develop more accountability, they can use those skills then to hopefully teach kids those important intangibles that a lot of times are overlooked, unfortunately. Jeff, you've written several books on leadership and culture and and how each one of those pieces can be developed in in many different contexts. What about these topics interests you and what have you hoped to accomplish with your platform you've been given? Yeah, I mean, I I got first interest in this. I was lucky. I was a junior in high school and I read a book by Tom Tutko called The Psychology of Coaching. And it was one of the very first books out there that kind of looked at the intangible side of sports and it just really piqued my interest so i knew as a junior in high school that i really wanted to get into sports and coaching and the mental side and the the motivational side and the culture side is what really intrigued me and and what i've seen through the years is that these intangibles of sports i always call our kind of the plus or minus two factor for a team. And what I mean by that is if you've got a team that maybe on paper, talent wise, is at a seven, well, if you can get the intangibles of leadership and commitment and competitiveness and all those important things really going for you, that talent level of a seven 
could maybe play at a level of an eight or a nine, that plus one or plus two kind of thing, and compete at a higher level than what they are on paper. And conversely, you might have a team that on paper has a talent level of 10. I mean, they're just really, really good, but they've got horrible discipline. They, nobody understands their roles. The communication's horrible. The chemistry's horrible. Well, that team that should be playing at a level of 10 might be at a minus one or a minus two, and they're now playing at a level of eight. So that team that's playing at the level of seven but has all the intangibles for them is really now going to be playing at a nine level. And that team that was at a 10 level talent-wise but don't have all the intangibles going for them, now they're playing down at an eight. And that, to me, is how some teams that really have no business beating some other teams end up beating them because they do have those intangibles. So I always call these the plus or minus two factor for a team. And I'll challenge your coaches, you know, as you, as they look at their program right now, where are those intangibles? Are they just kind of flat, nothing, they don't give you anything? Are they a plus one, a plus two, or are they a minus one or a minus two? So those are the ways that I kind of looked at it and why I really got interested in this stuff. And hopefully these things are not only things that work in athletics, but I've seen now kids who've gone through our program who come back and say, I'm now a principal at a school and I'm using these skills to teach kids how to get through life with these things. So that's really what I, why I do this. Yeah, I love sports. Yeah, I love championships, but I know that these skills will help people for 40 or 50 years after they leave the sporting team. And Jeff, when you're looking specifically at a few of your books, starting with how to build and sustain a championship culture, for example, you begin by defining what culture is and the different types of cultures that exist today. In your view, what is culture and why do so many teams and organizations continue to ignore the impact of culture on performance? Yeah, I mean, culture, fortunately, I would say over the last four or five years or so has really picked up in awareness. And I think a lot of times people really didn't tune into it until it was too late. I actually give an example of a Big Ten basketball coach who, as his season was really going down the tubes and people were wondering, hey, you know, why is your job security going to be any good anymore? He'd look back, and, and this was now in February and March uh, during that time, and he'd look back and said, yeah, I should have done some things very differently back in September, that now looking back, I didn't catch those things. I let those things slide. And now looking back, I, I wish I would have said something. I wish I would have addressed that guys weren't coming on a, in on time or that they were loafing and, and weren't really doing what they should be doing in the weight room. And now all that stuff is coming back to bite me. So those are all things that how your program does certain things, how you lift, how you train, how you handle adversity, how you represent your team at the school, in the community, all are important things. And what I saw with a lot of coaches were talking about, yeah, we need to improve our culture. Well, what exactly is that? What specifically is a culture and what are some of the things that are in there? So some of the things that I looked at are eight kinds of cultures that are there. And then I looked at what I call six components of a championship culture, having great, credible leaders, having a clear and compelling vision, having core values that really undergird your program, having standards of behavior, certain expectations of how people are to act and perform, having a committed and unified team, and then having aligned systems that all help support that culture. And those are things that I have coaches take a look at, and quite honestly, for a lot of them, that's the, the most kind of in-depth they've ever looked at their program 
in those different areas. And it gives them an opportunity to look at, okay, what are we doing well? And what are things that we actually need to improve upon? Jeff, one of the first things that you highlight when developing a championship culture is the importance of setting a vision. Um, obviously, the vision for a team is important and identifying and understanding the type of culture you'd like them to adapt. But what are some of the ways that coaches can make this vision compelling or unique to their specific team and their kids today? So obviously, everybody that's going to listen to this is going to probably be at varying levels of the kind of kids that they teach and coach. Um, so when you have so many different backgrounds and, and so many different um, age levels, how do you curtail a vision to, to meet those kind of goals that you're looking for? Yeah, I think you definitely need to have that vision, that big picture of a why are we doing all of this grueling hard work, especially over the off season, especially when maybe the season itself is a long way away or the playoffs are yet a long way away you've got to find a clear and compelling reason why we're going to get up at 6 a.m. and why we're going to go through these grueling workouts. And I think that vision is really, really important to get people to bought in, get people to buy into something. And for me and for a lot of teams, it's what's something that we could do that is special, that is different, that is unique, that would really give us maybe help us make a name for ourselves or to leave a legacy and you're right with some programs being the top half of conference or having a 500 record if you've got a team that hasn't won many games in the last several years you might be part of a team that turns around the culture and i remember when i worked with arizona their tennis team had really done a poor job and at the time it was pac 10 but now the pac 12 obviously for them to have a great season with all the Stanfords and the UCLA's and all the great programs in there, they were shooting for a 500 record. And that honestly got a lot of guys fired up because they had been in the basement so for so many years. So if they could be in the top half of the conference, that would be a really successful year for them. Other programs have been to Final Fours or have been to the state playoff game and now you're trying to get them to say, hey, what would it take for us to be hoisting that trophy at the end of the season? And for a lot of people, that's something that's going to drive them. So I think it's that doing something special, that leaving a legacy, making a name for yourself. And it may be at different levels, but that's what you're driving for in that vision. Also, Jeff, in your books, you dedicate two chapters to identifying and discussing core values and the standards of behavior. For someone who has never read your books, what is the difference between the two and what role does each play in building a championship culture? Yeah, I mean, for me, the core values are more the overarching principles that are there. And I'll give you an example. I had an opportunity to work with Michigan men's basketball, especially during their 2013 Final Four run and almost national championship in that one. And Coach Beeline sat down with his staff and they talked about what are the things, the overall principles that Michigan men's basketball is all about. And they had with theirs things like unity. We really want to be a unified team. We want to play with passion. We want to appreciate each other. We want to win with integrity. And we want to have diligence or hard working with them. So those were the overarching principles that they wanted to have in their program, which what I would call the core values that they had. 
Now, when you talk about standards of behavior, now you're looking more at the specific behaviors, the specific actions that will help support those overall core values. So one of the things that we have teams do a lot is talk about what are the acceptable behaviors and unacceptable behaviors in our program? What's acceptable when it comes to our training and our workout and our off season and what's unacceptable? What's acceptable when it comes to how we're gonna treat teammates and coaches and how we're gonna speak about them and how we're gonna handle the adversity that's there? What are our standards when it comes to the classroom or the community? What are those behaviors? So now you're getting into much more specific behaviors that either fit with those overarching uh, core values or go against them. So it's much more specific and behavioral driven versus the core values are much more of an umbrella that are kind of those big principles overall is how I would differentiate those. And when you... <clears throat> When you look at your books, one of the couple other things that you talk about with these core values and standards of behavior is you recommend gathering input from players and coaches and, and other support staff before finalizing your core values and standards of behavior. And you do this in order to create buy-in by all parties involved. So, you know, let's, you know, theorize that what if these values and standards suggested by your players or your support staff conflicts with your original vision of your team? and reflect more of a selfish end game than you find troublesome. So what would you do then if these party suggestions go against what your desired culture or, or what your desired culture is and still be able to create that buy-in? Because if they give you these suggestions and you continually kind of ignore them, isn't that kind of defeating the purpose of, you know, eliciting their input in the first place? Yeah, I think that's important. And what you have to do as a coach, I think, is even before you have these meetings is get an actual assessment of the culture you're coming into. A lot of times when you're a new coach, you're coming into a culture and you're probably coming into it because it wasn't very good. Maybe the previous coach was let go and now you're asked to come in and resurrect or rebuild this really uh, poor, corrosive culture, as I would call it. So in those cases, I think as a coach, you're probably going to be more directive. You're probably going to be more of the leader and you may be the one who's setting more of the tone there. So one is to look at that level of where your culture is. If there is some hope and you have some people you can build on, then I think you can do that. The other thing is to look at the maturity level of your athletes and your players. If they, if you feel like you can work with them and they're mature enough to look at the situation and probably a lot of them are frustrated with the record that they've had and the kind of pessimism that's been going on around with the program, if you have people who are hungry to win and hungry to do things well, then I think you can have more input from them. But if they're very immature and you're really at a bad spot, you're probably going to be more of the coach and the captain that first couple of months until you can get those standards in place and you can get those core values in place. You're going to be more directive. So I think, you know, it's it, each case is unique and it's important for the coach and the staff and everyone around that program to really understand what are we dealing with here? And is this, are, are these youngsters ready to, um, really embrace this culture and, and take us to another level, or are they going to need a lot more direction and help in doing that? 
That's awesome stuff, Jeff. You know, going off of that a little bit, one of the other things that is essential to the buy-in of these standards of behavior and core values becoming, you know, coming to fruition and becoming successful is a high level of commitment by all parties involved. And so, you know, when you're looking at that level of commitment, you know, certain sports can become a numbers game. And some schools may not naturally possess the type of kids who are willing to sacrifice and commit to what's necessary to thrive at that championship culture level uh, when a coach, in, a coach inherits the program. So, you know, they might have that desire to win and be part of a championship level culture, but they also may be intimidated by the demands and may then not come out. So, you know, when you're looking at kind of formulating that commitment level and, and setting those demands for people, how do you kind of balance the two to make sure that on the one hand, I'm rigorous enough to make sure I have my culture in place and it's protected, but the other hand, not being too rigorous that I scare people away and then not even allow my numbers or not even allow my culture to get off the ground because I don't have enough people there. Yeah, I definitely think it's a balance. And I think what coaches should probably envision is almost a staircase, maybe a 15 steps or so. And most coaches are like, oh, we want to be at step 14 or 15 at the very top and go. Well, your program probably is nowhere near that. Your program's probably down at step zero, one, or two, or three. And I think for, a, for those early periods, what a coach needs to do is certainly keep steps 14 and 15 in mind, but those probably won't be, won't be able to, you aren't able to get to those until maybe two or three years down the road in building this program. But right now, We've got to take the kids from where they are, step zero or step one, and we got to get them just to the very next step. And that's where I think for that short-term kind of time period, you're teaching kids what are the mindsets, what are the cultures, what's the kind of execution that's going to help us get to just that next step. And yes, you've got the bigger picture in mind, but these kids that probably don't have that they're going to want the praise for making one step versus you wanting them to make, you know, make it 10 steps up there. So I think what you need to have is a certain kind of, you know, bare minimum acceptable standard. One of the things that we talk about in our standards of behavior is three levels of positive standards in terms of exemplary. What's the absolute best of the standard? This is somebody who's coming in early. They're ready to go. They're taking advantage of the off season. They've got a great locked in focus for what they're doing. They've got strong goals. They're willing to stay late. That's an exemplary kind of thing. And then there's commendable, which is a little step below that, but still enough to earn some praise. And then there's bare minimum acceptable. And I think what coaches are trying to do when they come in is make sure they set that bottom floor of acceptable and then start to give some praise to those kids who are doing commendable things and making maybe captains and leaders out of those kids who are doing the exemplary kind of stuff. And hopefully then people are going to want to move up that stair step. And I think what coaches are doing in addition to teaching X's and O's and all that kind of stuff, what they're really trying to do is establish what are the acceptable behaviors, endorsing the people who are, who are achieving those behaviors, and then enforcing those standards with the people who are falling below. And if they're falling just below and it's unintentional, some coaching, hey, remember, this is what we need from you. This is why we need you to do it. I think you can do this. You got it. But if it's intentional and if it's repetitive, then it might be something, hey, this is our standard. You're not meeting it. And if you can't meet it, then we're going to have you sit out of practice for a bit. We're going to have you do something where 
this is a privilege and you're not living up to those standards that we need you to have. And until you do, you don't get the privilege of practicing right now. We have a lot of coaches who listen to this podcast, Jeff, who don't get to hold, you know, tryouts for their teams. And, and thus, really, they're kind of just accepting all the athletes who sign up for their program, you know, good, bad, indifferent. You're kind of like you just talked about. You kind of have your high end and then maybe your middle of the road and maybe the bottom 10%. Um, obviously, a good mix, it can be good and bad. But with the importance that you place on selection and making sure that you have the right people in your program, and especially when building your culture, how can high school coaches specifically still apply this selection principle when building their culture? Yeah, I mean, certainly there are some programs that have a no-cut policy or just the number-wise. It's, it's hard to, uh, to have those cuts with people. I think it's really important to sit down with your administrators ahead of time and to make sure everybody is on the same page in terms of what specifically that means. So, okay, I understand I cannot cut anybody. Yet at the same time, we need to try to create a culture, have some core values, have some minimum standards that we need to put into place if we're going to be effective. So I think with your administrators, it's really important to talk with them. Yes, I'll accept everyone, but there's a certain bare minimum standard that we're talking about before like being on time, like making sure that we are making all practices unless there's an academic issue or a death in the family or some extenuating circumstances. So I think it's really important to start putting in those acceptable levels of standards that are there. And if people can't make those, that's where I'm talking about, okay, well, maybe they're not going to play the next game then. They're still a part of the team. But there has to, I think, be a bare minimum standard that you as a coach understand, that your administrators understand, and is clearly communicated to both the kids and the parents on the front end so that everybody knows this is not just a free-for-all, anybody can do whatever they want. We do have some minimum standards that we're going to abide by if we're going to be effective as a program short-term and long-term. And Jeff, you touched on something there that I think is really important, which is getting the parents to buy into all of this as, you know, an extension of your culture as well. And so, you know, beyond just simply having that typical parent meeting where you kind of go through your standards of behavior and your core values of your program, what are some other ways that you can bring the parents in and give them access to your program to really be helpful to your culture? Yeah, I think much one of the things that we do with the kids is talk about, okay, what are those exemplary standards? What are those commendable standards? What are those acceptable standards? And then we go the other way too. What are what we call borderline standards of things that where if you're starting to push it a little bit, you're show, not showing up on time, or you're supposed to be over the summer making at least three of the workouts each week and you only made two. We have unacceptable, and then we have totally non-negotiable. This cannot happen, and if it did, it would probably get you kicked out of the program. Well, we do that with the students. That same thing can also be done with the parents. What would an exemplary parent look like? What kind of support would they be giving the program? How would they be helping and contributing? What's a commendable parent? What's our bare minimum acceptable of what we need? If you're gonna be a parent in this program, what are just the basic things that we need from you in this? Then what are the borderline things? Or sometimes we'll call them concerning. What are the things that if a parent's doing this, that's going to be some concern for your child and certainly for the coaching staff. 
what are the unacceptable things? We can't have these both for your kid and for our program. And then what are the absolute non-negotiable things? These things cannot happen no matter what. So I think having those kind of conversations, and if you can have, much like you have a captain on a team, if you can have a parent who's bought into what you're all about and trying to accomplish um, as a program, then I think if you can have kind of a parent who also is playing that role, who is respected hopefully amongst the other parents too, they can kind of be a captain of the parents and remind people when they're starting to stray from what those standards are of, hey, remember Mr. Johnson, this is what we talked about at the beginning of the year. I know you're frustrated right now, but this is not the way to handle it. Let's figure out, let's calm down a little bit and we'll figure out how to handle it tomorrow morning. Jeff, and then as we kind of kind of wrap this up here, what are just some strategies that coaches can use uh, when they're building team unity within a championship chip culture? And what are some of the ways that coaches can build trust and commitment with their assistant coaches? So now we're we're not only managing the kids and the parents. Now I think the final piece of this is how do you get your assistants, especially in this day and age, to really buy in to what the head coach is saying. Yeah, I mean, first of all, to kind of look at the unity stuff, I think one of the best things you can do is have either accountability partners or what some teams will do is have small little teams within the teams themselves. And the more that you can have this accountability that if somebody needs to do something, you've got a support person who's with, with you on them. A lot of times what I'll have teams do is maybe challenge each other to do certain things within a drill, either come early or stay late. And if you've got five reps that you're doing in a drill, challenge that person to, to complete at least four of them out of five before they leave the practice or before they move on to something else. And you can be then one of their teammates who's helping them and supporting them with that. So the more you can do that kind of buddy system, accountability partner stuff, and then rotate them every now and then too, so that you're meeting different people, um, getting different positions, working well with each other um, too, because sometimes if you've got large teams, those people don't always see each other, um, so you can do that. And then one thing that I actually did is um, talk with coaches about the things that they need from their assistants. And I actually have got an article called 12, Assi 12 Essentials of Effective Assistant Coaches um, that's out online. Anybody can go Google that and find that. And what we looked at were that there's, you know, at least 12 things There's certainly more, but 12 were the ones that, that kind of came up over and over again from the ability to teach the game, to having a positive attitude, to be able to really connect with kids. And certainly loyalty was number one in all of that. But not only looking at that on the front end, especially when you're bringing on assistant coaches, but also I'll talk with coach, head coaches and say, why don't you at some point evaluate your assistant coaches on those 12 different things and see where the strengths might be and to see where those areas might need to improve as well. So it's just another tool, hopefully, to look at assistant coaches and, and there too. There, hopefully, you do have a little more selection. I know sometimes that's not always the case either, but if you can have some selection um, or say in who those assistants are, do a great job vetting who those people are. And they don't have to exactly think like you do, 
but you do have to have similar philosophies. You do have to have similar core values because if you don't, that will become very evident very soon and that will bleed through to your kids as well. They'll see that, hey, assistant coach doesn't really agree with head coach all the time and they will do their best to play that just like they play mom and dad when they know they don't agree with each other as well. Last question I have for you, Jeff, here, um, just kind of a hypothetical situation. We have coaches right now that are out applying for jobs or going through interviews, and, and some of them are fortunate enough to land that head coaching job. And so they've taken all this information that you've given them in terms of how to build a championship culture, and they've put it all down in writing. And then they're going to have that first meeting with the team that they're going to have to set their culture, and they're really going to come off with that first impression. So what advice would you give to those coaches who've kind of gone through and put all of the, the championship culture foundation down on paper, but now have to sell that in the first team meeting? What are some of the things you would emphasize in that first team meeting to get your championship culture off the ground? Yeah, I, I think it's real important. One of the things that we did when we were at Michigan is we had what was called a rising talent program. And at Michigan, we identified assistant coaches who wanted to be head coaches. And one of the things that they did was they sat down and they talked about their philosophy and what they wanted their program to look like. And they actually put it down on paper so that when they did have some interviews with athletic directors, they could be very clear and compelling, hopefully, about what that vision for their program was and what they were all about. So I think it's important for every coach to understand what are their main core values? What are the things that they're willing to lose games over? Because those things, they know if they stay true to those in the long run, those things will build a program. And that's what I think you're trying to do is really decide what am I all about? What do I want to teach? What is the bigger picture? So that when someone leaves my program, these will be the skills that they will have. So I think when you think through all those things, if you can, like Michigan basketball, I did boil that down before, the five things that they wanted to be all about. So I think all coaches, if they can look at the three to five things that they want their program to stand for, and hopefully when they've taken that job, they felt that alignment from the athletic director, they felt that alignment from the community, they felt that alignment from kids who want that same thing, and I think it's a matter of, of talking about this is the kind of program that we want to be at our school, in our community, and you get to be a part of that. You get to be a part of something special, and we love that you want to be a part of this, and this is not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. And by the end, when you're done with this, you are going to come out as someone who is going to be successful in any single thing that you do because you've adopted this mentality, because you've been a part of this championship culture, and you've learned how to execute under pressure and under stress. So I think all of those things, you know, there's not one thing I would say, but if a coach can talk from their heart and their passion and what's important to them and show how somebody can be some, a part of something so much bigger than themselves, then I think those are the things that you would want to communicate in that very first meeting that you're going to have with people.